2: On today's episode of Around the Coin, I interview Philip Blows, the CEO of Accru, spelled A Q R U. Accru went from early stage founding to being sold to institutional investors and publicly listed within 10 months. We talked about that journey. Uh, Philip and Acru are on a mission to normalize earning interest on crypto. We talked about where crypto companies are generating their yield from for investors, the difference between stable coins and cryptocurrencies for yield and their implications. And generally speaking, discussed investment strategies for holding cryptocurrency, uh, the trends in DeFi and CeFi, decentralized and centralized finance on crypto and all sorts of other things similar to that. I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you do, please share Around the Coin podcast with friends or on social media, or just like and subscribe on YouTube. It very much helps us grow and attract better guests. So with that being said, I bring you Phil Blows.
3: dive in with you um i love what you're working on and why don't we kick it off with what you mentioned pre-show the funding journey to go from idea and powerpoint to publicly traded through the spac is uh quite an unusual journey why why did it need to go that way or what what was that journey like
4: yeah i mean it was it was um I think there's a big thing about credibility, and like trying to stand out from the crowd in in the crypto space is uh, is you know it's tough. It's an, it's a competitive market, and it's got a lot of players in it. So, you know, one of the things we were hearing from our kind of target demographic, which is the you know, the mass affluent kind of crypto fringe player or crypto amateur, is they don't trust a lot of the companies that they're speaking to. So, um, or they don't know they're not transparent. So the idea of becoming a, a listed company very quickly where, you know, we're, we're regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK as, a, as an exchange listed company on, on the London Stock Exchange. Um, you know, that that was uh, something we wanted to get to quite quickly. And the opportunity just popped up really, really quick, a lot faster than we ever thought it would. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been it's been a really good move so far. And you know a lot of the customers that we speak to say, you know, it's a it's 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 a bit of a, a differentiator. Yeah, there's very few, people in our, very few companies in our space doing it at the moment. Where are you guys now? You're less. Than, where are you guys now? You're
3: less than a year old, slightly over. Uh, where are you in terms of how you measure progress—revenue, or users, or transaction volume, or whatever matters?
4: Yes, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, this is one of the things with a public company is you know we. We 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 can disclose sort of the growth of the business and things like that. Um, but you know we've got to be careful about what we do because obviously we've got to we've got to inform the market all at the right time. But in terms of how we've you know how we've gone about growing, I mean we the business was founded in well the business that started was sort of January of 2021, um, and you know we went public in October via this sort of takeover back into a, into a listed business. And you know, in that time, we've we've built and launched a product, which was you know the first step was to build a stable infrastructure, and then launch and launch a web, Android, and Apple Store product all in one go, um, which was quite a tech feat from the team, which they you know they just like blew it out of the park completely. Um, and um, you know, now where we are, sort of fast forward, we launched on the 13th of December. You know, getting getting kind of our PR and marketing strategies really firing was the first process that happened sort of over Christmas and then to January. And then it really sort of started going aggressively in, um, in, uh, in sort of February time. And, um, you know, since then we've, you know, we've, we've onboarded thousands of customers in, in the space, you know, we've got decent assets beginning to build up and you know, the momentum of the business is crazy. It's, um, you know, we're, you know, week on week, we're seeing the kind of progress that you'd want to see in this, at this sort of life stage of a life cycle of a startup business. And, uh, yeah, it's really exciting. So, um, yeah, all, all the metrics could have going in the right direction. Now that, that's probably, probably yeah. what i saying, you, despite some fairly, fairly nasty, um, crypto market conditions throughout the whole, whole, whole piece as well. Yeah, no, I resonate with that very
3: much. I started a crypto company in 20, late 2017, 2018, and then the market just crashed. So, nice. uh, it makes you, it makes you more robust and, and durable to make it through those times, um. But, but why was it a need for capital was it just opportunistic to roll up into a SPAC uh was it like a personal relationship with people that you knew because so, it is so atypical
4: yeah I mean it, it it started I mean probably worth sort of rewinding to sort of the start of the funding journey a little bit so we um you know it was it was kind of Jan, it was January of of 2021 and um you know we'd We'd been building this business sort of in the background and just managing or helping friends and family kind of generate yield on their cryptocurrency. And it was just getting out of control. You know, it was it was like the ultimate lean startup. You know, it was literally a a weekly email saying, look, this is the yield we've generated this week. You know, there's no front end or anything required. And people were like, look, you've got to push this. You know what? Can we give you more? And it was it was just getting silly, so we said, okay, we've got to we've actually got to do something about this and, and build a business. So we kind of had that initial validation from friends and family, and and then you know wider community. After that, so we we went out to raise basically about a million dollars, um, and this process took us quite a long time. So, you know, we we probably were, we were beginning to close out the round around about sort of late April, early early May, um, and. I'm not sure if you remember, but 2020, like crypto halved in value in May. So you mentioned that 2017 thing. So we, we had like a million dollars lined up from kind of, um, angel investors and we were going to raise another million from institutions. But, you know, as institutions tend to do when market conditions change, you know, they were answering our calls and calling us before May and then come like the crash, we were calling them and they were just, they weren't even picking up our calls. So, um, yeah, this 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 is where you're, you're really having to kind of juggle a few plates because we had this amazing CTO that I'd worked with before. I was trying to convince him to quit his job, and he was just like, "Well, how much have you got in the bank, you know?" And I want to see the bank statement, you know. <laughs> and this, so I was like, you know, I was having to balance him with, uh, you know, with with all of this 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 horrible market condition, and you know, raising these, um, you know, get, getting the money in early from 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 seed from seed so angel investors. And luckily, I was man- I managed to convince him to sort of leave on the back of that first sort of million dollars that we got in. Um, but but very quickly we saw the uh, scale. Of the opportunity was huge. So we are like we're probably going to need additional capital, and so we we almost started fundraising almost immediately again. Huh. Uh, what's the model? So what what
3: you're offering yield, which is not an uncommon thing, uh, DeFi or CFI, where people put their crypto into wallets that are managed by companies. And then those companies pay out uh, yield sometimes between five and 20%, depending on the, the currency and the market conditions. <clears throat> uh, those m- many of those companies, as far as I understand, they are taking that yield and well in the simplest version, they would just be allowing people to borrow as well. So you, you can mm-hmm. borrow, you can come in and you can put collateral down and you could borrow up to the amount that you have in collateral with some, some calculation there because there's some uncertainty as what the price of crypto would be worth yeah. is there a unique take that you have on that or what did you see when you started the company that was interesting enough for you to dive in and build another one
4: well i think you know in, in my i've had this sort of general theme throughout big most of my career which has generally been in in traditional finance, and it's it's very much around trying to just simplify complex processes and and then deliver them to retail customers. And, you know, De- DeFi is one thing. So we, you know, I was invest. I have I obviously know crypto, no finance uh, relatively well before we founded the, the business. And I could see that there was these amazing DeFi protocols out there with huge yields. If you recall back in like, yeah, 2018, 19, it was just, it was insane. And coming from a traditional finance background, you're, you're looking at these thinking, you know, there's what's what's wrong with this? You know, this is this is just crazy. And um, you know, clearly yields have dropped a bit since then, but at the time it was it was uh, it was pretty good. But I am um, I sort of saw that and said, Well, you know, the idea that the average sort of mass affluent kind of crypto amateur is gonna open a MetaMask wallet, fund it with gas, and then connect it to a DeFi protocol and start earning you know, sort of yield, I mean, that's like 99% of people is way beyond them. And, you know, given the sort of experience I'd had previously um, in, in the traditional financial markets, like I just knew that was never going to happen. So you need a more simple solution. So then then you look at the kind of the big centralized exchanges and said, OK, well, what about these guys? They're, surely they're solving this problem and doing it well. And you sort of see, OK, well, yeah, deposit your Bitcoin at one of these big centralized exchanges and we'll pay you a yield. It's like, great. OK, what what yield are you going to pay me? Well, do you want it in our coin? So, well, what what the hell is your coin? You know, like I've never heard of it. And if I'm an if I'm an amateur, I don't you know I've I don't know if it's a good thing to get it or not. And then you know if there's a a a limit to you know if you want to put any significant amount onto the platform, then you know the the yield drops again. So all of a sudden you've got this mass even the even the sort of the 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 traditional or the 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 incumbents were overcomplicating it. You know they're trying to trying to get you to hold their coin. They're trying to get you to you know, there's all these kind of tiered approaches. So I just said, well, let's just cut all that out and say one platform, make it really simple. You know, you can put normal cash fiat onto it in multiple currencies. We exchange it into, you know, the top three kind of assets for, for free because we, you know, we're not looking to make money out of exchange. And then it's just one rate paid in whatever you've deposited, right? So you deposit Bitcoin, we'll pay you 7% yield in Bitcoin. Stablecoin is 12% in stablecoin. There's no, Staking of 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 illiquid kind of like um, you know utility tokens or anything like that. It's just really basic. So you know I think the DeFi market is amazing if you understand it and if you've you know you've 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 got the the time and and sort of the expertise and technical now to go out and do it yourself. But you know we're really hyper focused on this kind of this this target market of you know the mass affluent who just just wants someone to take care of it for them in a, in a safe and simple way. All right, so I'm with you fifty percent of the way.
3: So I hear the front end side if I wanna earn yield, what's going on behind the scenes? I put in uh five thousand dollars with Bitcoin, very simple, that crew just pays out a percentage uh over time. What's what are what is the crew doing on the back end to accrue that yield?
4: So in terms of you know what's going on the back end you know we have a team of of investment professionals who you know they've be been managing retail and institutional money in, uh, for for customers for, for as long as defi has really been around for and their job is to really scan the you know something like 10,000 different protocols out there which um you know which pay yield in the world of defi so, you know the vast majority of them you wouldn't touch in any in any way because they don't have a good audit track record they don't have enough assets, you'd be too big a part of them. And really, what the team is doing is building a diversified portfolio of the best opportunities in DeFi, wrapping insurance products around them where they can, and uh, you know, trying to build a really nice sort of risk-adjusted portfolio. And you know, I guess that's where we are. Our kind of size is actually quite a benefit for us because some of these bigger players who have you know ten, some of them tens of billions of dollars, cannot access these markets. They just don't. They're just they're just too big for them. So with us, where we're smaller, we can, we can pass on much, much higher yields to our customers than just sort of the straight kind of institutional lending model, which is what these, these competitors have to do.
2: In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen, specifically because of poor key management, scams, and hackers. Forget not your keys, not your crypto. Software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability that a single private key can be lost, hacked, or simply just misplaced. My new sponsor, the Zengo Crypto Wallet, is a total game-changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. You have to check out Zengo, an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which has, just until now, only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. So Zengo, most secure Web3 wallet, It's the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured. It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system, and it's also just beautiful. Get started at Zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's Zengo.com. Code ATC for $20 back on your purchase
0: of $200 or more. winner. Interesting. So do you think of
3: it? I think of the hedge fund more traditionally as, as this concept where people put in money and they say, hey, Phil, you can do whatever you want. Just uh, you know, pay me back more than I gave you. And there's complete freedom there. Is that do you view it more aligned with that where your team can research all these different protocols? They can deploy capital and however much increments to these protocols they want and then it's kind of up to you guys to make as much on the back end as possible. And then your, your income as a company is the spread.
4: That that's correct. But we, we do, you know, the way we, we, we're not looking at it as an investment management business is we, we are the tech layer that sits between the DeFi protocol and the, you know, the everyday customer. So we're saying, look, the, you know, by this is where your money is going. It's these sort of four protocols. That's what it is. And, um, you know, we're looking at some really interesting new stuff that we're doing. Where you know, a lot of the a lot of the um, the DeFi protocols that we're talking to, you know, they I've mentioned they've got these very very well say very complicated. You know, they're complicated to the uninitiated. Sort of front ends. We've got to connect wallets. Um, you know, we're going to those same protocols and saying, look, we've got this group of retail customers. You know, you've got this amazing protocol that you've developed. You've got a following. That, you know, our customer base are never gonna by themselves go and go and access it. So what we'll do is we'll almost bring that in your product, the front end, into our app. And it's this concept of kind of C DeFi, um, where a customer, you know, we, we sort of abstract all of the gas costs, all the wallet infrastructure out of the on the back end, and we just sit in front of that DeFi protocol. So the customer can say, you know, for argument's sake, just say it's curve, for example. Let's say I want to invest in this curve pool. Um, I've got dollars, US dollars. So one click, we'll do the conversion and then deposit into into a curve protocol, and then manage all of the 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 yield that's generated and make sure it's compounded back into the initial the initial coin. So it's kind of that that translating layer, and I think everything that we do in the future, it's that's kind of the mission that we're looking to really sort of achieve is. We want to be that bridge between traditional finance and decentralized finance and, and and cryptocurrency, and trying to make it simple and safe for anyone to be able to access these these, these awesome innovations that we're seeing in space. Yeah, yeah. And where do you think
3: the the tip of the spear is on this yield? Like when you see tremendously high rates of return, say you know run the rewind the clock a few years, you're sitting there outside of the crypto world and you're speculating as to what why are people willing to pay this much to get access to these coins uh, have you triangulated on uh, a thesis at least for most people or is there many different reasons why realistically people are paying for this is it is it just speculation like gambling where it's, you know people I mean, just say hey i believe
4: when you when you dig into the yields you know you realize that it you know the major the, the actual true yield in sort of DeFi, it's it's kind of the it's in line with, with peer-to-peer lending models. It's sort of five to eight percent, you know, which is it's the that that's what it is. And that's like the true the true yield, which is which is coming from, you know, if you're putting money into like a an LP, um, you know, providing liquidity to a to a decentralized exchange, that's kind of the trade, you know, when when the markets are busy, that's kind of the the trading fee revenue. Or if it's a a straight kind of, um, say, protocol like Arve or someone like that, where it's people borrowing. That base is what pe- that that kind of base yield is four to eight percent tends to be what the base yield is. So all of this excess return, and this is what actually makes it quite interesting from a risk reward p- profile. All of that excess return comes from um, the tokens that the platforms are incentivizing you with to use that use that exchange. So, whereas you you might earn a fifteen percent yield, you've got you say you know five percent of that is coming from real kind of demand and borrowing, and ten percent of it is coming from that protocol just giving you you know a boost on their tokens, and that that kind of life cycle of those tokens, you know that that's measured max in years, right? So, unless there is a yeah, and and that that is really driven by kind of the overall speculative. Um, I guess drivers behind the crypto market and you know how because the moment these tokens begin to plummet so do the yields and then you are left with that sort of base yield so um, you know I think you've got to really look at it and say that there is a big part of the yields and the, the outsized returns that we've seen are being driven by you know really just VC money that are pumping the space and pumping the coins and that it's really marketing that's going and I think what we're seeing now is a lot of these sort of 2020 2021 DeFi projects are coming to the end of their token distribution and you know they've had billions of dollars put on them now that out outsized risk or return is gone it's like okay well what you know the tide's gone out you know who's wearing swimming trunks sort of thing right you know yeah. it's like you know is there really a use case under this that's that goes beyond the uh goes beyond that that initial thing so bit of a turning point i think for for, for defi yeah yeah what, what
3: what do you what do you what's your opinion of that are we seeing people uh, exposed or are people largely i think,
4: I think there's lo- there's been there's been so much copy and paste there's a lot you know it's going to be huge consolidation in the space Matt, and you know there's not room for tens of thousands of protocols you know it's just it's just not how it's going to work but you know encouragingly like what we're seeing now is very is is sort of like you know the do- defi 2.0 was you know, it was probably no better, which is this like mass sort of crazy um inflationary tokenomics that we saw in certain certain protocols. But what we're also seeing is like is what, what DeFi was originally invented for, which is like is improving the or making more efficient real-world um financial use case. So one one of the areas I'm really excited about is kind of supply chain finance um in 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 kind of DeFi. And you're seeing a lot of protocols where you know, all of this sort of glut of stable coins that we're seeing right now, because, um, you know, a lot of people have dived into stable coins as the markets come off. You know, they're being used to finance really cool real world use cases like um, Amazon inventory. I mean, I'm not sure if that's, a, that's something you've looked at, but, you know, if you sell if you sell products on, on Amazon, you know, you have to front the cost of that product, ship it to the, um, you know, the Amazon factory. So, they, you know, the fulfilled by Amazon type type model. So it's really cash intensive and, and these, you know, and so these sellers tend to borrow um the money and people fill this sort of supply chain financing gap. Um and you know the the rates, you know, that that the 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 lending itself is you know is collateralized by the the stock that's held with Amazon. So it's the the risk is much, much lower. The rates are still sort of six, seven percent. It's new it's just new use cases and real world use cases. And the cool thing is, yeah, supply chain finance, I think, is, is around about a $7 trillion market. So, you know, it's already three times larger than the current crypto market. And we haven't even, you know, no one's really done that in any size yet. And, you know, that kind of Amazon approach is just one area. And, yeah. you know, you can make it so much more efficient for for all the participants in the, in that kind of um, transactional journey through DeFi. So that, that kind of use case is going to get really exciting.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like ultimately you have to make, there's going to be a profit margin to share. It has to be an improvement on what currently exists. And largely that improvement is cutting down on human beings or excess fees. So in the case of traditional finance, I look at all the banks and, and the enormous inefficiencies that they, they capture or they, they, they have. So the competition to develop something that's more efficient, you look at a bank versus a DeFi protocol. I mean, it's it's got to be in the order of like 10x more efficient in terms of manpower and just overall
4: it, everything it's just, that goes into it. It's just crazy. I mean, I, I have um, you know obviously the, the bank. I, I speak to quite a lot of like bigger banks in the UK, and you know, I had I had one of them uh, recently. I was I was talking to, and you know, they were they were very. I wasn't really sure why I was in the room because they're very very dismissive of crypto in general. And they are. This is a storied institution with you know hundreds of year history. And they were they they started really going down the the kind of ESG route with me, you know, sort of saying you know crypto is really, you know, gas intensive, and you know I'm like, starting to get a little bit maybe heated and wound up, you know, why am I sort of here? But you know, so I had to sort of raise the point that look, I'm on the thirtieth floor of your of your building, which is like only ten percent full, and you're having a go at me about like you know. <laughs> the Delicious. about uh, my carbon the carbon footprint of crypto right let's let's be honest here you don't need this building and you know it's empty pretty much because it's sort of you know no one's returned yeah. to work yeah. post covid so you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it it's this um yeah i don't know it it yeah i mean it's so it makes sense there's right so much, there's so much power supposed, to the system
3: yeah and they anyone who's advocating that a strength of their company is the fact they've been around for 150 years That's a prime example of, of who you don't need to convince that crypto is going to be effective. Um, what about, so I understand the five to eight percent yield category on stable coins. This is not just you guys pretty much across the board. It seems like 10 to 12 percent range for DeFi protocols and centralized, uh, C5 protocols. Why is it so much higher for stable coins? And is that? is there another funding source for that that's that's boosting up
4: that higher yield i think you know what what we've seen is the markets come off with with what we've you know since november time and um in you know, the last sort of three three or four months is everyone's come out of the real speculative assets that have that have been smashed to bits basically and you know, some of them, you know the big the big old coins are down seventy seventy five 75% or more you know and they're all sitting now in stable coin so there's too many stable coins in the system. It's massive risk-off environment, but you know, ge- generally, the people who really want to borrow, borrow, they want to borrow assets that aren't wildly fluctuating in value. You know, if I and and I think that's because generally they're not staying in stable coins when they're being bought. They're being used by you know big institutions who borrow, tending, tending to sort of use them for arbitrage opportunities. So there's quite a lot of, um, you know, there's quite a lot of um, like chopping and changing between currencies. So the reason everyone wants to borrow stable coins is because the underlying is is, is obviously pegged to the dollar. If they were borrowing Bitcoin, you know, often some of you know, some of the arbitrage opportunities aren't as good, but also, you know, you're, you're managing your risk and your kind of general exposure to the debt that you've borrowed is is more complicated as, as the underlying asset is moving around all over the place. So, um, you know, we find a lot of you know, stable coins always have been more in demand and, and the rates have always been higher. Um, so I think that that's why you're seeing such, such good yields on, on stablecoins yeah. in, in the wider market. So, Phil, you wrote
3: a book, uh, The Money Triangle, a couple of years ago. Why? Yeah. What was the impetus yeah. for writing a book? Obviously, I, I've never written a book. I have friends who have, and I hear from them how much work goes into writing a book. I don't know if there's a way to hack that or shortcut it, but it seems like just putting a book up on Amazon is is a ton of work and it's not cheap either why did you write a book what was the inspiration
4: oh i was i was working for this fintech um which is comically called um wealth wizards um which uh despite the the slightly comical name was doing some amazing stuff in the sort of automating um financial advice not not like your standard kind of robo advisor that just just sort of spits out standardized portfolios but taking really complex, almost like at retirement portfolio advice, you know, talking about annuitizing pension pots and taking into account tax and all these sorts of things—a really cool bit of kit. And um, you know, we were selling it into workplaces um, in the around the UK and, and, and abroad, and it was, um, you know, it was there to sort of, as an employee benefit. So I was on these endless road shows, you know, all over the all over the UK, and um, you know, some crazy stories about, you know on factory floors and, um, you know, in the, um, you know, speaking to the, um, the, the, the Playboy bunnies in the, in the Playboy casino in, in London, who was wanting to know what to do with their, with the tips they had in cash and, you know, these sorts of things. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, yeah so, um, exactly. So, I mean, over, over kind of four years, I think I took about 10,000 people through, this tool, which was an amazing kind of product learning curve and really helped with the sort of the early ideation around um accrue. But um, you know, the same stuff just kept popping up. You know, and this was this was like just what? talking to So, you know, everyone's spending too much, earning, well, spending too much, saving into cash, into the wrong products. You know, they're kind of the way they were looking at work, just like, you know, turning up, not really sort of caring very much then trying to have like a half-assed attempt of doing a side hustle on the side which then ultimately meant they were even less focused on their day job you know these these sorts of things and um you know i, I was i was traveling a lot into london i was i was always in my yeah i was always looking at trying to have my own productivity and things like that and i was spending 45 minutes on a train into london and, and 45 minutes out again in the evening so I just started writing down some, you know, I started writing blog articles and then I kind of turned into books into sort of like longer chapters that then just turned into a book. So it was, it, it was really a way of, you know, taking what I'd learned from those 10,000 people trying to distill it into like really simple kind of lessons, trying to make it you know, fun and entertaining by wrapping real world stories around the, you know, the each lesson or, you know, and, um, and then just like you know, trying to trying to be productive with dead time on the train. And I think I, I wrote the whole book on the train, you know, to and from so, to and from London. So give speed me something. What what, did,
3: what so people are complaining they don't know where to invest their money. What what right. were some of the lessons that you saw
4: like what? I mean, it was it was it's what, what I you know in the book, and I, I should probably I should probably like, you yeah, know dig into some of them. But it's like it's I, I'm obsessed with the with compounding and like compounding mm-hmm. principles are, are so good like. You know, that one hour a day you spend on social media, like how much that looks over a year. It's sort of like a month of your waking life, right, is is on, is scrolling, is scrolling through social media. It's like, just imagine if you got given a month to do something constructive, what you could do with that. And it's like, you know, and it's the same with your money. It's like, um, you know, most people just don't even, you know, and it sometimes gets a bit of a bad rep, but like that, that morning coffee of two, you know, two and a half so-called two and a half dollars say you know every day for you know five days a week for 20 years you know if you invested that in say an index tracker, low-cost index tracker at sort of seven percent you know that's like ten twenty thirty thousand dollars building up just from your morning coffee and it's like you know just have your coffee at home for god's sake you know i know i know you probably yeah you know, buy a coffee machine it will still cost you less than you know buy an expensive coffee machine it'll still cost, cost you less than the twenty thirty thousand dollars it will cost you know to in, in the future, and you know just the, trying to trying to just you know, give these little kind of nudges to try and get people to think about it and and just change some of their behaviour. Um, and I mean the so you know the, the triangle being you know what you, you know how how to how to spend it, you know, how to save it, and um, and how to um, uh, and how to earn it was the was the final one which was just around. Yeah, mo- most people start a side hustle when they're kind of you know mid to low tier in their performance in their job. And so, look, if if you the easiest way to increase your your earnings is just to be awesome at, or better at the job you're currently doing, you know, and get a promotion, you know, versus trying to do something really really hard, like learn how to sell a product on Amazon, for example, you know. And it's um, it's that sort of thing which. Yeah, most people don't think about because because there's so much stuff. News, you need to start do the next, do the next. Um, you know, get you know, be busy and you know go and research this, do that, and start a side hustle and you know start doing. Well, yeah, it's just it, for most people, it, the best thing they could do is just focus on the day job, you know, and be better at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if that's a,
3: I wonder if that's like a subtle, or maybe even not so subtle tactic by companies to convince you that what you have is not good. So you have to leave what you have and then join this other thing. The grass is greener and, and yeah. the only way if someone were to say I mean this would be the least compelling product marketing pitch ever. hey Phil, you know you have a great shirt you, you know you're probably very comfortable in that shirt. you probably don't even really need another shirt but like if you ever do, we have a, we have a decent quality shirt over here. It's like yeah. not that motivating you know they have to say your job your job probably sucks. you're probably feeling drained. So then you, you picture you know you have a hundred experiences throughout the day and you picture the 10 of them that were really negative and then yeah. that fills your consciousness and you're thinking this job really isn't for me maybe i'm not meant to be yeah. an accountant a doctor or a a whatever painter and then you say oh but this other job this other profession that if i can only get to somehow more aligns with my life path and i view that as there's a it's like a it's like a chasm, right? It, it, maybe you really do want to move in that direction. And something inside of you is compelling you to be interested in that because there is a sensation, a feeling that you can have of just being in love with what you're currently doing. So in that situation, you don't have that, that strong pull, that desire to go towards something else. So there's something there worth worth understanding the motivation that's drawing you in that direction. And and I view it as like, yeah, same thing in relationships is is my perspective is that, yeah, there's something to work on within yourself and within the partner or within your job. But the answer as tempting as it is, and as simple as it is, and sometimes easier to just cut out the job, like quit tomorrow, get a divorce. That's, that's not often. If if you, if you look at other people have gone down that road, it doesn't lead to where you think it leads as often as it does. And, it, that seemed, I mean, do you observe that to be
4: true with 10,000 yeah. people you talk to? I mean, it's so true. I mean, I, especially the divorce side of things. You know, I know so many people who divorced, moved on, and like they, you know, so many of them regretted getting divorced and not working harder on it. Um, and it's it's always true. There's, there's you know, I, one of the things I did pick up on the book and I really enjoyed the research was, I don't know if you, did you know about like the the, the sort of the ex-Googler who did the happiness equation stuff? Um which is you Run throw down up, happiness into... Yeah, it's it's like just well, happiness is basically an equation, which is, um, you know, your reality sort of minus your expectations. And, you know, if your expectations are kind of lower than your reality, then, you know, you're happy because you're doing well. And um, so it's almost like you can balance that equation. So you either lower your expectations, but it doesn't sound particularly motivating and, you know, you're happier. And I think the example they use is... The happiest, the happiest being in the world is your dog, right? All it wants is a pat on the head and a big bowl of food. You know, yeah. low expectations is the happiest thing in the world. You know, that's that's literally, it. Yeah. But you know, at the same time, you've got to sort of, yeah. You know, so you can improve your reality, and you know that makes you know that that's one way of improving your happiness, well above your expectations, and you sort of sit there. But you know, things then tend to equalize. But it's it's that that equation think is quite interesting, and you know, I'm sure when you you know, that's when you have these huge goals, and they're constantly, you know, written all over your, you know, your bedroom wall or whatever. And um, and yeah, it's just you can just stress yourself out and make yourself so, you know, there's there's got to be a bit, you've got to be a little careful about having these lofty goals. And and um, i one of one of the things I've observed as well from quite a lot of people I've been in touch with who've made a lot of money is just how depressed they are afterwards. Right? They kind of expected achieving their financial goals to be this kind of like amazing life-affirming thing
1: Hmm.
4: and what they actually enjoyed the real life-affirming thing was the fact they had this goal and it was the journey towards that goal was what they actually enjoyed so achieving it was like life destroying um which is really fascinating because you know I'm not saying I'm not you know I'm not commercially driven but it's you know just shows how much you've got to sort of you know diversify the goals you have and just just be aware that that's something that a lot of people suffer from. I think. Yeah, it's amazing how cliche that is, yet so
3: difficult to grasp until you've experienced it. I mean, it must be, uh, it's almost like the hero's journey of the human life, where you can know that that's what's going on, but you're still incredibly vulnerable to that trap, which is like you're obsessing about the trophy. If I could only get the trophy. So, So you forget about what the point of the trophy is along the path, like in competition. And, yeah, one of the things you said reminded me of uh, lowered expectations. There's a good Saturday Night Live SNL skit. It's called, uh, I think it's called Lowered Expectations, where it just shows people that are, uh, (laughs) you know, lowering their expectations. Um, And it's kind of parallels the stoic approach, negative visualization. If I I visualize, okay, you know, today there's going to be an earthquake. My house is going to crumble down. And everyone I know and love inside of it is going to die. And I'm going to be homeless and without anybody in my life. Like, can I still survive? And that's extreme thing to picture. It's just, it's almost impossible to picture, but anything can happen. Like every time you get in a car, you, you know, you can, you, you might not walk out and just, just setting your baseline to that, as opposed to your baseline to the positive things. This is true. I was listening to a good Jordan Peterson snippet where he was talking about the tendency of human beings to, uh, default, to, to look for the negative things. Evolutionarily, if we, if we look for the negative things, we can, we can improve the negative things and we can improve our lives and we can stay safer and, you know, flourish more so, but that doesn't optimizing for existence doesn't optimize for happiness. And you can, you can exist. It's almost like, uh, existing is a priority over happiness, of course, right? You'd rather be alive and miserable uh, often for per- periods of time than dead. But we don't, if you don't baseline on the positive things, like if you have one, one in 10 things in a relationship that go bad and you don't acknowledge the nine that went good, then it makes it feel like you're just focusing on the negative thing. So saying to somebody, Hey, thank you so much for putting away the dishes, something positive, acknowledging the positive things, I feel like it has to be a, a huge, lesson that you can take within yourself in relation to your job right like man it's so great that i got to leave work early today or that i have Mm. a great boss or a partner or like how many really good things are there about every person's living situation and if you don't if you don't look at that and acknowledge that yeah you're miserable it's like but there, but it's not you don't have it's not guaranteed to stay that way i guess is my point
4: yeah. And it's, it's, it's so, it's so interesting because, you know, there's all these studies around, you know, this is, this is something, it's just like your baseline happiness always returns to like the mean. And, you know, by no means i I mean, I can't imagine how tough it is, but you often hear this in really extreme cases, like, you know, people who you know lose, lose a body part or like, you know, can't walk, you know, and again, a big accident, that sort of thing. And, you know, the initial sort of plunge in sort of happiness and it's, you know, their life's ruined. And then, Often, you know, when they get interviewed, so three, five years down the line, it's kind of like actually, you know, the happiness level is returned to the baseline of what it was before. And, um, yeah, it's, I mean, we just before we, we started, you were saying you had a two year old. I've got a one and a three year old, as I said. And, you know, it's, it's really easy to get like, I just want to sleep or I just want to mm. like chill out and not have to read you a book for like six books before you go to sleep. Right. But it's, um, but then when you realize it, it's like, um, you know, you've only, it's, it's it's like five years that we're actually going to want to chat to you. And, or, or like, you know, they're going to obviously, but it's longer than that, but there's going to be this massive period where they are just their own people and want nothing to do with you. And like, you know, picking up your kid and sort of giving them a cuddle now. And, you know, it's one of the most amazing things that, that could ever happen to you. And it's like, yeah it's difficult to sort of yeah you've got to it's you've got to keep reminding yourself I keep finding myself reminding that saying look it's just this is just this is probably going to be the most you know the happiest part of my life and the, the most amazing part with my kids so yeah mm. don't you know really you know as, as hard as it is put the extra effort in to just sort of like you know acknowledge it and be in the moment and you know and, and growing a startup with, with with two really young kids is is is, uh, is an experience but it's at the same time I've I've, grow- I've largely worked from home so I've I've spent like so much more time with my kids than I ever thought I would do, and it's um, mm. especially at this early stage. I think of my own parents who were, you know, my dad was working. You know, he was, tra- he'd go tra- travel, you know, travel for a month, you know, and we wouldn't see him for a month, and um, you know, being out the door at seven and, and back at you know eight, and we'd you know we'd would see him see him at the weekends. So it's sort of like that that's i mean to to not have to do that because of the way that the world world of work has changed and you know even doing really savage hours in a startup cuz i'm doing them from a home office i can always nip out and see my kids it's amazing and um yeah. you know i think just that balance has been yeah and it's it's a constant reminder like you know appreciate 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 what you've got right now as well as everything else
1: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
2: I never win and tell.
1: Well, there you have it. You could get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah,
3: yeah. I I feel like there's there's the the story we have internally about what we're doing, our relationship to people. And then there's the, the external cultural stories that get put on us. So, you know, I picture like one of these, and these stories are always changing too, right? The uh, influence of the cultural story on women and what careers to pursue has changed a lot within the last 50 to 60 years, right? It was the, the mainstream cultural expectation was, you stay home, or watch kids, uh, maybe yeah. maybe get a part time job. Now, now it's pretty much on the other end of the spectrum where it's go out and pursue the most challenging and high paying jobs that men do and strive to be e- equal, if not better at it than them. Yeah. And I think I think we're we're getting to a point where there is an acknowledgement that 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 has diminished returns that there, there's something to be said for the growth of the the spectrum and the depth at which like women in this case women pursue professional roles but we also are between men and women programs we have different incentive structures i was talking about this this past weekend which i, I thought was really interesting which is that men men innately feel like the masculine men feels to protect and provide so bring things in and protect the, the barriers. And this is not just true of humans. This is true of like chimpanzees, uh, uh, mammals at large. And then the, the female has the kids and is more nurturing. That's a broad generalization. And of course, many people fall on either end of that spectrum. But the incentive structures for women later in life, like late 30s, 40s, 50s, is not the same as it is for men. Like men largely is what, I, as I observed, they still compete heavily as they did in their 20s and 30s, into their 40s and 50s, up this hierarchy of largely business, right? Which we we keep a rough scorecard with money, but it's more than that. It's like social status and influence and power and you know, super that kind of thing. Women is not the same way. Like if you think about it, just in in your your life, like women who have gotten to the top of a, a corporate ladder, they're not necessarily they're not more attractive to men in the same way to equal capacity that men are to women and i i find the sophistication of this nuance is the like the growth of our collective it's like if we don't if we if we don't acknowledge this or at least try to figure out what's going on between the two genders and what we each want and how we can build a better society together then it's like a blind assumption that we should we Should equally pursue everything, and, and the goal is to have 50 50 split across all boundaries, all races, and ages, and genders. And it's like, I, I guess, looping it back, it's like it takes these kind of conversations to figure out what the story should be
4: you know, what,
3: what should your kids pursue? Uh,
4: yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a, I've got a side, I've got a son and a daughter, and um, you know, they're it's gonna be watching them grow up and. it's going to be phenomenal my my, you know my wife is is hugely inspiring and you know she's she's worked you know she worked incredibly hard she's like wildly more intelligent and better better throughout her whole sort of schooling than I ever was and you know worked for a top tier sort of accountancy firm and you know was really climbing the corporate ladder but did give that up to, to to look after our kids and she she wanted to do that and you know she's going to go back to work but she's already got a lot of pressure from people who are kind of judging her because she wanted to spend her you know she sees this as a really important time it's not me pressuring her to do it you know we would we would make allowances and if we need to put the kids into you know into into nursery five days a week we would um you know but it's this is what she wants to do she wants to raise our kids and like and yeah, you know, I I think everyone should just yeah. There should be no pressure on anyone to sort of how they you know one way or another. Society shouldn't judge anyone as to what they want to do. And there seems to be a bit of a shift towards really pushing. You know, if you're not if you're not out there doing everything, I think it's this this boss boss lady kind of you know thing. And yeah, it's yeah. just the same. Sort of, there's a, there's a lot of toxic stuff with for, for men as well in this in the same vein. But you know, it's just anything where. Yeah, just people getting, getting made getting made to feel bad about the choices that they're legitimately making is just silly. You yeah, know, but we, I yeah, I agree. We've got to, we've got to have a le- level playing field for everyone, give everyone the same opportunity. And I'm I'm a massive believer in sort of, um, you know, in in equality of of opportunity, um, but you know, not equality of outcome. You know, because there still yeah. needs to be yeah. a kind of competitive playing field for everyone, because that's sort of what what drives us. To, you know, drives a lot of people. But, you know, the the opportunity has got to be has got to be the the level playing field for everyone. Yeah, yeah,
3: I totally agree with that. I think I think the vast majority, if not all of the people who think carefully about this, arrive at that conclusion, which is you're never going to hit equality of opportunity. But we collectively as a society benefit from moving towards that direction because we we selfishly, you and me and everyone else should want. The most number of people that are alive on this planet to be able to contribute to the maximum capacity of their creative and product productive energy they have. The the more people throughout the world that are producing, that are creating, the more we get to benefit from buying and watching and consuming their things. So that's that's I think that that part of it doesn't get highlighted enough. And so there's a there's an underlying implicit skepticism of like quality of opportunity. Yeah, sounds nice. Unless you have a ton of money, which means why should I want other people to have it? Because if I'm in in my head, in the back of my mind, if I'm thinking it's a zero sum game, I'm like, yeah, quality of opportunity. And then meanwhile, I don't do shit about it. But I think that's the like you we we all should selfishly want that to be the case. And yeah. yeah, I just want to under, underscore that because I think that's the that's the thing that really gets people to change is when they're like, no, they really believe it because they selfishly want it for themselves as opposed to just, oh, it's a nice thing to do. And I have to sacrifice something myself like, yeah, no, that doesn't happen. Exactly. No, it's so true. It's um, true. Did, did you observe other? It's so interesting to talk to you because you went out and talked to 10,000 people in their jobs. Were there other things that you. Observe that weren't intuitive, or you think other people didn't or don't see about the way that people work, their relationship to their job or money.
4: I mean, the the bit the biggest one as well is just the you know like badly under risked. It was the other thing, you know. in In the UK, we've got something like two hundred billion, um, sterling just sitting in cash accounts, earning like negative interest rates. and you know it just comes from a basic lack of not understanding how how risk works and you know how long-term returns work and if you know for most people they should be putting this stuff into you know always go back to index trackers because it's the easiest thing for people to invest in it's the lowest cost and you know generally it's you know you you see it you see on on a in a bad bear market on average it will drop 32 percent and once or twice a year on average it will drop 10 percent but in the long run those are just blips into what, what was a you know, a crazy, a crazy ride, and I think it, Buffett sort of mentioned it. With you know, you look at the 20th century; there was crazy inflation. You know, interest rates going up and down. There was two world wars. There was you know multiple other wars. But over that time period, the Dow went from eight to eleven thousand, right? With all that stuff over that hundred-year period. So, you know, if you've got a long, if you've got a long-term time frame, which a lot of the people I was talking to would, you know, they they should be investing money now. They're not going to touch for 30 years. You know, they cannot afford for that to be in cash. And, you know, a lot of them weren't earning huge amounts of money. So it's even more important that the little that they do put aside is working really strongly for them. And um, this this is part of why I got into crypto as well, you know, because it's sort of we found we found I found somewhere where there are these consistent returns that are outperforming what the equity markets were doing. And, um, you know, and that's that's what sort of initially drew me in was, you know, I, I don't even I don't really talk about crypto in the book at all as an, as an investment asset class. I, I do mention it, but don't really, you know, that point sort of bring people into it, because it, I think for most people, they should just stick to the simple equity side. We we see crypto as being five, 10 percent of a diversified portfolio. You know, it's a high risk asset. That's that's what that's what it should be. But it, it's also been, you know. The top performing asset class in the last 10 years so you should you need ex, some sort of exposure to it and you know five ten percent of our, of the overall market portfolio again is is orders of magnitude larger crypto market than it is now so that's kind of one of our longer term bull cases as people move into the space but um yeah that, that whole idea of under wrist is just like that that was a killer every time and you know, we've got something called premium bonds in the UK, which I'm not sure if, if, if you've, you've sort of heard of it. But it's like this government saving product, which pays like sub one percent. But you get put into this like raffle every month and someone wins like, you know, a few thousand. No way. Yeah. And that that like gambling mechanism hasn't given it insanely high engagement from like people. But the it's still overall we net it all off. It's like sub one percent return because it's got this sort of gambling, like you know, everyone's like, oh, I might win on the premium bonds, you know, my premium bonds and that sort of stuff, and you know, be able to to yeah. Is, I've never heard of it. Can we talk about this a little bit more? So it's the, the UK does this or London does? This? Yeah, you sort of get entered into this. Yeah, so it's it's like a government-backed savings product, but you just sort of get entered into these sort of competitions where you know every every month they pay out you know, some, a certain portion of people pay out and they're quite vocal about it. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's sort of, it taps into people's sort of inherent sort of gambling addictions that they've got and sort of, that's so funny. Yeah. And, you, and, and because there is this sort of promise of like a government backed sort of like bonus that might appear and you might, and you, and you'll probably win it, you know, you'll probably win it at some point because everyone does it, but it's, it will you know, it will only top you from like half a percent over the course of a long period of time. It will top you up from like half a percent per year to like 1% a year. You know, it's just like, so yeah, people just, you know, That's fascinating. Yeah. Talk, so talking to people in, in the workplace and they're saying, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big investor. I've got a big pot of, you know, premium bonds. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to win. Oh, yeah, I'm going to win at some point and this sort of stuff. And it's like, That's so funny. So it's like the government is it.
3: Would you agree that it's the government wanting to incentivize people to save? And so they offer this little, this little gambling yeah. bonus that pops up every once in a while. But in reality, it's not a good investment vehicle, but it's better yeah. in their minds. It's better than spending
4: it. Yeah, it's been, I mean, they've done, the, the government's done some really good stuff recently, but they've done this thing called auto enrollment where, you know, there's like a minimum sort of employer sponsored sort of pension contribution. Now, you know, it only ends up being eight, 9% of like your salary that you're putting away and the half fits you half fits your, your employer. But um, you know that that's been that's probably been the 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 best sort of government initiative, and it's it kind of works on a negative affirmation basis. So like you you get put into it, you have to opt out, and then you get put into it in the following year, and you have to opt out. And you know most people are so you know poorly engaged in their finances that they won't bother to opt out, so they get forced to save, which is like Mm -hmm. that's like the ultimate kind of savings hack for most people is just make it more difficult for them not to contribute than it is to contribute. Um, you know, most people just hate anything to do with sort of, you know, their, their finances that. so, you know, I think, yeah, it's a really interesting sort of
3: How's Uh, we live in different countries. They're very similar in many ways, but different in, in others as well. What was the, what was your experience personally? And then if you can comment on at large, of financial education say between in public school or say in your childhood was it, it are there classes uh at all are they poor in quality are they impressive like what's what's going oh, yeah. on with financial education?
4: there there is there was absolutely none no it's none, it's, yeah. it's so strange like you know and you know when you do maths, and it's 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 got an S when uh, when you're in the UK maths, um, hmm. you know it's it doesn't tie it back to money. It, uh, it ties it back to you know trigonometry and you know all the really important stuff that you're going to use lots of. Um, right, right, right. Yeah, but um, you know, so yeah, it's Dang it's there. it's weird. It's weird. I mean, like the only you know you get it you get it from you get it from your parents or no one really is the is the idea. Um, and yeah, you pick up your parents' spending habits. That's what's so weird nowadays as well. Like, you know, my my kids are gonna like never see money. You know, they I mean, we just in the UK, I, I pay for everything with my phone now. I used to I used to I don't carry a wallet anymore. I used to like um carry a wallet and tap. Then I realized that, you know, my Apple Pay has a, you know, it doesn't really have a limit. Whereas my, my sort of tapping my card was, you know, like fifty dollars or something was the max I could do. But I could tap and pay, you know, two hundred dollars with my with my phone. So, you know, it's um It's going to be so weird that there's never, they're not going to see this concept of kind of physical money in any, in any way that like we, we did growing up. Um,
3: Yeah, no, no, they just think, uh, you know, you just open up this magical device that you have right here and then on the Amazon app and then things just pop up in your life. (laughs) Yeah. It is incredibly abstract without a physical representation of it. No, no gold, obviously, but no paper tender
4: coins. I mean that's quite that that probably makes it even more dangerous, right? I mean that when you when you're trying to like instill good spending behaviour, and it's even less tangible. It's like this magic magic money that's sort of floating around in the ether, you know. Yeah. Um, the most yeah, it's it's going to be difficult to to change that, you know, to have responsible behaviour. But perhaps because it's more digitised, you can almost hack the behaviour better by you know, having automated sort of ways of spending your money and, you know, and setting limits that, you know, you, you can't, it's difficult to violate and things like that. So, mm. yeah. Whereas, you know, you, you go out, you go out on a, on a night out and you've got like a, you know, some a stack of cash and you come in, you wake up in the morning, you've got no idea where it went. Um, you know, if you, uh, you do all of that on your, it with, with spending limits sort of wrapped around your account and stops you from buying something silly at a bar that you shouldn't, you know, then um, yeah, that sort of thing is, could, could be useful. So, what's next for you guys? So, you you're publicly traded
3: already. You've already IPO, not IPO. You have spat. They call it spat.
4: Well, we we ba- we basically were acquired, by a listed company, and then we took over the the, right. the enlarged entity. Basically, um, so yeah, we've 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 got a pretty a pretty packed sort of twenty twenty two. You know, we've we've got this solid platform. We're onboarding a lot of customers already. It's now about a, how do we take on the incumbents. Um, you know we're paying higher yields and I think we've got slicker tech we've got really really good sort of customer experience which a lot of these these platforms don't have. So you know with that message taking it out you know I want to make a dent in the existing incumbents that are in the market and you know really over the next couple of years take billions of dollars worth of of, of, of customer money. but at the same time it's about we've got this whole other audience as well which are the emerging crypto audience and bringing them in by showing them, or educating them primarily, but then sort of, you know, getting them to drip feed sort of money into this and to, to test it out, to sort of feel more comfortable with, with digital assets. That's going to be, a that's going to be a huge driver. So even if we don't sort of take that much off our competitors, I think, you know, we're going to, we're going to open up a new asset class. And, and a lot of the early traction that we've seen has been this, at this, this kind of fringe crypto um, mass affluent class. And, um, you know, that's going to be really exciting because we're also learning a lot more from them about what they want and, you know, what kind of products they want to see in the future. So, um, you know, we're, that's going to inform a lot of the product development going forwards. So yeah, it's about scaling. 2022 is about scaling and, you know, making a dent in the universe, hopefully. Nice, man.
3: Well, congrats on the progress you've had so far, and I'll definitely be following your story and wish you the best of luck,
4: Bill. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mike. Yeah. Keep crushing, man.
2: Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you.
0: I'm
2: Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, and more.
0: The handler one day told her this whole thing about how they've been terraforming on Mars and they're building a colony and they're recruiting specific people of specific bloodlines and specific talents and skill sets to go onto the planet. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet,
2: we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.